Good evening to all of you. It's, um, I'm glad to see all of you here. It's an honor to introduce to you this evening not just one, but two really fabulous writers, Bernice McFadden and Cortia Newland. Bernice, it's a pleasure to welcome you back to the Pratt Library. I think Thank you've been here a couple of times. I, have. I love this library. <laughs> And uh, Cortia, we welcome you for the Thank first you. time and hope this won't be your last time here at the Pratt. Um, I'm just going to say a few words um, about Bernice and Cortia, and then they're going to tell you, they're going to read from their books and then tell you some more about themselves. Um, Bernice McFadden is the author of eight critically acclaimed novels, including Sugar, Gathering of Waters, and Glorious. Uh, and Glorious was a finalist for the NAACP Image Award. Cortia Newland's first novel, The Scholar, was published in 1997. He's written six additional novels, including The Gospel According to Cain. And this is his, the first of his books, which has been published here in the United States. Uh, and both his book, um, The Gospel According to Cain, and um, Bernice's um, novel, Nowhere is a Place, have been, and that has been reissued by Akashic Books. And we're really grateful to Akashic Books, um, which is a small independent publisher in New York. Um, we're grateful to them for sending Bernice and Cortia here. Uh, I have copies of both of, their, uh, both of these books, um, and they'll be signing. They're available for you to buy after the reading and the and conversation. And I'm happy to tell you that we're selling them at a discount, so there's no reason why you can't get one tonight and take it home with you and enjoy it. So, Bernice and Corti, it's all yours. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, yeah, so um, I suppose what we're going to do is uh, I'm going to introduce myself to you guys, tell you a bit about myself, and then I'll read from the book, and then Bernice will do the same, and then we'll just open it out to you guys. I'd prefer if we had a conversation, I think we both prefer if we have a conversation uh, between ourselves, uh, rather than us just talk at you for the time that we've got. Um, yeah, I was pub first published in the UK in 1997. Uh, I primarily write about um, young people in coming from the council estates of West London, uh, what you guys would call the projects. Uh, I mostly write about working class people and I suppose for the first part of my career I, I, I didn't mind being defined as being an urban fiction writer but uh, I know here and in the UK that has uh, different connotations than what it once had. Um, I believe that I'm writing in the tradition of writers like uh, Rosa Guy, um, Anne Petrie, uh, in, in a sense, you know, Donald Goins, writers like that, who actually uh, made poetry about the things that are happening in those areas and actually tried to talk about uh, the human side of, of that kind of existence, that kind of upbringing, um, what was really going on for people who are living in, you know, areas of, uh, you know, poverty and, um, you know, I suppose a bit of uh, degradation. Degradation also... Uh, for people who are battling with, you know, issues of race and class. So that's primarily what I've been trying to do, or that's what I started out trying to do. Um, 
I think maybe two or three books into my career. Uh, I was also writing plays as well. I was writing screenplays as well. I got interested with doing something different with that. So I've been trying to uh, say the same things fundamentally, but um, use almost different genres. So uh, my third novel was um, a detective novel with a private investigator, a black private investigator. And uh, then I wrote uh, my fourth book, actually was a book of short stories. Uh, It was called Music for the Off-Key. And uh, the reason I called it Music for the Off-Key was because uh, in London slang, in young London slang, off-key means like someone who's a little bit weird, someone who doesn't, uh, you know, uh, it, it doesn't act normal. Uh, so we say that's really off-key or you're really off-key or something like that. So music for the off-key meant stories that were a little bit different, a little bit strange. And so I, I tried to blend the surreal um, with the realist take on fiction. So I had a story about... Um, a, a young man from a council estate background who wants to leave and uh, grows, starts to grow wings, you know. And then I had a story about a boy who uh, has come to England from Nigeria and is bullied by other boys, but uh, he starts to find out that anything that he wishes for comes true and he can use that as a way of getting revenge on, on, on the boys that are bullying him. So I started to try and, you know, because there's so many stories in the inner cities, you know, there's so many different things going on, and you tend to find that the stories that you see are the same old stories. And um, I know all of my friends, the people that I hang, ha- hang around with, uh, the people that read comic books and stuff like that, they, they, they're dying for something different, so I decided to try and do that myself. Um, then my next book after that was called A Book of Blues, um, which is... Um, another book of short stories, and that was about love, actually, because I felt, you know, you very rarely see a book that is about black people, uh, particularly black people from Britain, that is just about love, <laughs> you know, just, with no other really ulterior motives or no other issues, you know, just about, uh, you know, our humanity in a sense. So um, I, had, I, I began that book with a... Um, uh, an epigraph from um, Ralph Ellison, you know, uh, just saying the blues is an art of ambiguity, you know, um, you know, and, and it expresses the uh, irrepressibly human in, you know, under all circumstances, and that's that's really what I was talking about, you know, just let's look at uh, black British people, let's look at working class people just as human beings rather than people who have issues, you know, whether it's issues with drugs or if it's issues with poverty or with race and things like that. So um, then I got interested of the idea of talking about uh, the issue of class in British society as it pertains to uh, black British people. And so uh, that's when I decided to write The Gospel According to Cain. Um, the Gospel According to Cain is about a a woman, a middle-class woman called Beverly Cottrell, whose um, son is abducted from uh, her husband's parked car um, almost 20 years ago. Um, he's never found again. And she rebuilds her life uh, in a sense. She, she divorces her husband, and she moves out of her big house. She had a very nice house. Her husband was a lawyer. She taught in a private school. And she moves on to a council estate 
and she believes as a way of giving back, she's going to uh, teach creative writing English to kids that have been expelled from school. And she does that voluntarily because she's you know, still you know, got a little bit of money. And then uh, 20 years after that, uh, a young boy starts stalking her, following her everywhere she goes, and he manages to get past the security gates of her uh, council block and knock on her door. And uh, he says that he's her son, he's the, who's, who's come back. And, um, yeah, she, she's never sure whether this is the case or not. And um, I think for me, you know, there is, there, there is this case of abduction. Um, there, it's based on a real case. But really what I wanted to explore was um, the divide between the generations, you know, and, you know based on class, uh, mostly, and the fact that, you know, uh, young people in Britain are feeling increasingly uh, ostracized by their elders, in a sense, and that, that's, that's regardless of color. And that led to, um, I don't know how much you guys know, but the, the riots of two years ago in London, where, you know, basically, I mean, London burned. It really burned. It was really, it was, a, it was a very strange night. Because not only London was burning, but the rest of England was burning at the same time. And it was all down to kids on Blackberries, basically, who decided they'd had enough. And, uh, you know, it, and we'd, 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 I mean, what they did wasn't right, obviously, but, but there was cause. There was definite cause. And, and mostly down to, you know, their, their outrage at the police, who, who, you know, who'd killed a lot of people. Um, that year, and, but also their outrage at being ostracized from the society and, and being vilified, you know. Um, so, so I just wanted to talk about this, and it's funny because I finished this book just like a month before it happened, and one of the lines that, that Beverly's sister says to her when, when, when uh, her, her son comes back is, you know, he's not part of our family, he's a feral child. Uh, and you know, when the riots happened, the newspapers were full of, you know, feral children taking over our streets, you know. And, I'd, you know, I'd written it, like, you know, finished it a month before. So this was definitely, it was in the air, you know. There was a lot of stuff that, was, that I could feel. Anyone who was working with young people around that time, you could feel their anger and their frustration way before it happened. And uh, very few people who were working with young people at the time were surprised that this happened because, you know... It had been in the papers for so many years, you know, calling them hoodies, calling them chavs. I don't know if you guys know that word. It's a, a Romani gypsy word for friend, actually, but it's used to describe mainly white working class <laughs> young people. And it just means, you know, you know like a feral child. That's, what they, that's the way they use it now. And it's, it's a regular turn of phrase. So anyway, um, that's kind of like the background. And... Um, I'm just going to read an excerpt from the Gospel according to Cain. And um, the excerpt I'm going to read is um, when Beverly's seen this child. She hasn't, he hasn't approached her yet. She's seen this child around. And first she's really, really scared. And then she, by her own violation, comes to the conclusion that uh, this child actually could be her son. And she regularly goes to see um, a psychiatrist 
to talk about what happened before. And she tells the psychiatrist that she thinks that she's seen her son. And she's obviously like, you're crazy. That's, there's no way. And how would you know? He was eight months old when he was stolen from the car. So that everyone's like, well, how would you know? You, know, you wouldn't even recognize him now, even if he was. And she's, she's adamant. She's like, it's my son. I don't, I don't care. I think it's my son. So this is, uh, she's gone to, to see the psychiatrist. She's just told her. She's the only person that she's told at this point in time. And she's driving back to uh, the block where she lives. The perfect day smiled down on me as I drove towards home. The skies, although far from empty, were stark blue, and the clouds were cream grey and white, like the bellies of thoroughbred birds. I thought about warm, soft feathers, a flight, and the vast emptiness above my head. I thought about my conversation with Sue, how such little things could set off such emotion. One boy, one glance, and everything had changed. Only days before, my mind had felt like a void. Now it was filled with practicalities, suspicion, nervous energy, and hope. I bit my lip, often, to keep from smiling. When I pulled up outside my block, I saw a figure, back turned, moving from side to side, sweeping. I parked and the figure swung around, waved. Ida. I joined her, eyes dancing just in case he was there. I wanted to let him know it was okay. I wasn't scared. I'd made a knee-jerk mistake. I didn't intend to let some random kid from the street enter my home in the thick of night. But if I saw him now, I would speak to him. I wasn't sure how to inform him of my new resolution, although I thought it best that I saw him before he saw me. Ida continued to sweep until I got close. She stood, held her hip, leaned back. Afternoon, love. Afternoon, Ida. You okay? I am. Swishing night before rubbish into a mountain pile by her feet. Rhythmic, repetitive work. Heard that racket over yours? Who was knocking so loud? I'm not sure. That's why I didn't answer. Sorry. Some bloke down, he reckons. Young fella. I see, I said. She caught my expressionless, closed-mouthed face. Swept harder. You read the leaflets they put through our doors? About the meters? Yes, I did. The council had been threatening to install parking meters on our little cul-de-sac for years. It had always been residential permits only. But now the addition of paid parking meant we would be competing for vehicle space with the tourists and visitors. I sighed, looked around. Well, I suppose it was inevitable. I know it was, but I don't see why they shouldn't concern themselves with spending money on community safety. I mean, look at that. Ida pointed her broom high up on the opposite wall. The CCTV camera, a limp, broken limb, filming the sidewalk, jerking fitfully. Oh, sorry, I have to say 
we wouldn't say sidewalk, we'd say pavement, but <laughs> this is the American edition, so yeah. <laughs> Jerking fitfully, I tutted. Can you believe it? Wouldn't be so bad if it wasn't for that. Ida swung her broom 180 degrees towards the street end of the block. A group of kids, some standing with hoods up, others on bikes, feet poised, ready to take off. I counted six, had seen them as I pulled onto my street, but was so used to ignoring their presence, they'd hardly registered. Most were tall, broad as the boy, hulking from here to there, restless. Loud voices and laughter, puffs of smoke, blue language, staccato words in time with the mechanical jerk of the camera, chopping hands. Expression is combat. Tung fu. Most seemed consumed by what the rapper was saying, apart from one kid who dwarfed his bike. Grey hood turned our way. Sorry, I'm just going to wait until that stops. Most seemed consumed by... <laughs> Sorry. Most seemed consumed by what the rapper was saying, apart from one kid who dwarfed his bike. Grey hood turned our way. Grime reaper. We noticed each other, a trio of sight lines converging, and then I dropped my head, turned back to the building, saw Ida's head already down, hands sweeping. Out there every night they are. I know, Ida. Selling drugs, drinking, messing with young girls. We don't know they're dealing. They could be hanging out. Why don't they hang out inside? In your club, they could go there. There's nothing for them either. I teach creative writing of sorts, and if they've no interest, there's nothing. I mean, the centre has lots of activities, but no money to do the stuff they'd really like. So we have to put up with them. They're rubbish and filthy talk. I know either. I just don't think anyone's going to come and clear this up for us. Ida sighed, stopped sweeping, looked at me properly. They didn't want people like you living here, not so long ago. I remember. It was the same then. Different, but the same. You understand? I think so. You survived, though. I had to touch the pile of trash with her brush. I think I'll bait. Would you like dessert? Yes, please. Pecan pie, maybe? That would be lovely. Do you need ingredients, or do you have everything? Some pecans is all. I'll go to the shops. I patted my pockets as Ida dug into hers. I'll get it. Don't worry. See you in a bit. See you, love. I walked to the end of the block. Grime Reaper watched. I kept my head straight on the road, ignored him until he lost interest. That satisfied me for some reason. Thank you. Good evening. Thank you all for coming. We really appreciate you coming out this evening. Um, I don't know how many people here are familiar with my work, but some faces look familiar to me. Yes? Yes? Okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> Thank you for coming. Um, okay, for everybody who's not familiar with me, I've been um, writing professionally for 
1999, and this is my 13th or 14th novel. I've lost count. Um, actually, I, I'm telling a lie. This book was published in 2006, the first time, so this is the reissue. So this is actually my sixth novel. Um, born and raised in Brooklyn, New York, and I still kind of sort of live in Brooklyn. <laughs> I'm, I'm in and out. I've been writing since I was a little girl. This is the only thing I ever, ever wanted to do. I strayed away a number of times, simply because as I grew up um, reading, each book I picked up, when I looked at the jacket, at the photograph on the jacket of the author, no, none of them looked like me, so I figured all of the black writers were dead. And that there were, you know, no one, that there was no one out there like me writing books. The first book, and, and I just realized this a few years ago, I had an epiphany. The first book I read by a person of color was The Color Purple by Alice Walker. And that was right out of high school. That was my um, graduating year, 1983. So that's 30 years ago, 30 years ago. And when I closed that book, something in me exploded. I said, well, she did it. I'm sure that I can do this. But I still, you know, went back and forth for a while. Um, my first novel is Sugar, and that was published in 2000. And it took me 10 years to get that novel published. Um, uh, Kriti and I were talking about this on the train coming in, that when I was sending it out, well, the first, the first, um, <laughs> the first draft was horrible. I look back on it now, I'm like, oh, it was so bad, it was so bad. And I use that in class when I teach. Uh, the second draft, it, you know, it was a little better. But the third draft, I knew in my heart that it was right. So that's when the rejection letters started to change. The tone of the rejection letters started to change. And, it, and it's, um, the agents and editors were saying things like, this is really a wonderful novel, but there's no audience for it. And I didn't understand what that meant. What did that mean? There was no audience for it. Um, and so I, you know, I'd have my little breakdown and cry, and I'd start picking through it again, and even though I wanted to walk away, something in me just kept saying, put it back out in the mail, keep doing it, keep doing it, keep doing it. And so over time I had a child and changed jobs a few times, and um, the rejection letter pile was getting higher and higher, and finally... I was working at this company called Sunburst Holidays. I was in travel and tourism for a number of years. And um, it was raise time. And my manager came in and said, oh, Bernice, we can't give you a raise this year. And I said, oh, that sucks. And I went home and I thought about it. And something in me said, go back to work and quit. And I went back to work and I quit. And my mother was like, you did what? <laughs> but I had a little money saved, and, you know, I just felt like that's what I was supposed to do. I've learned. It was from that point on I started listening to that little voice in my head because that little voice never steers me wrong. I may be sitting there going, this doesn't sound right, this, you know, but the voice will say, trust me. So I was home from, I think, November until May, and I just reworked that first novel. That's all I did. I kept my daughter in... Uh, you know, after-school care and everything, just so I could have as much time as possible. And um, when May came around, I looked at my bank account and realized it was only about, you know, $300 left in there. And, you know, my hair hadn't been done. I had put on 10 pounds. 
And I said, okay, now I have to go out and find a job. So I started applying, and Goldman Sachs called me in for an interview. And I was in such a bad mood because I did not want to go back to work, and I knew that my life was supposed to be a writer. But I had to eat and I had to pay rent. So I went in and two um, VPs interviewed me, and I remember I had such a bad attitude. I probably sucked my teeth a few times, rolled my eyes, and everything. And I went home, and they called me, and they said, you have the job. And I was like, okay. So I started a week later, and it was this new um, department. So there really wasn't much to do. There were two of us. The phone rarely rang. I had a brand-new computer, a laser jet printer. And at home, I had this old computer that I had to beat on. And I had a dot matrix printer. Do you remember the dot matrix printer? So imagine, it took days for 300 pages to print out on it. But at this job, I could print my manuscript. I didn't buy paper for a year. Had email. I didn't have email at home. And so I, this, is, you know, this was the perfect thing, and the universe knew that. Um, so fast forward. A year later, it's very busy. I have my sister working there now. I have another friend working like, there. Eight people in this department. It's very busy. And uh, my manager comes to me and says, Oh, Bernice, it's raise time, but we could only give you whatever, 3%, which was ridiculous for all the work that I was doing. And I was like, mm, I think it's time to quit again. But a week later, an agent contacted me and said, You know, I really love this manuscript. But I want to take you on. And I said, okay, but I didn't get excited because I had been to that point a number of times. And I knew from the stories that you can still get an agent. It could still take years before the agent is able to sell the work. Um, so I went in. I spoke with him. I signed with him. And a week later, I had a two-book deal. And the next day, I went into Goldman Sachs and gave them my resignation. So working full-time as a writer from 1999, in 2006... When this book was published, Nowhere's a Place, with Dutton, I was advised that they were not going to renew my contract and because of the numbers, the numbers. You're not selling enough. And the, the audience, they, they, they try to make you believe that the audience changed. The audience really doesn't change. Your audience does not change. But they wanted more of the urban what what has now become to be known as urban lit. And that's not anything that I was writing under Bernice McFadden. But luckily, I had started writing under a pseudonym, Geneva Holiday. So I was publishing as Geneva Holiday from 2005 until 2009. And then 2009, that was it. No contracts, nothing, nothing. The market had crashed. Most of my money was gone. I had My daughter was in college, and I had a book, a manuscript circulating... Um, titled Glorious and nobody wanted to touch it it went to everybody and anybody and finally uh, the last agent I was dealing with said you know there's nobody who wants this work and so I took it upon myself to start sending it out and uh, that's when I found Akashic so Akashic Books is in Brooklyn it's a small independent press and I have to say it was the best thing that ever happened to me um, so Akashic had published Glorious. He published Gathering of Waters last year. He reissued The Warmest December, which was my second book. And now Nowhere is a Place. So the story behind Nowhere is a Place is this. Um, I consider myself an amateur genealogist. 
So I've been researching my family history on both sides for a number of years. But mostly on my paternal side, because my father did not know his dad. And um, his mother, my grandmother, kept a lot of stuff away from him. My father was not a well man, and I knew he was not going to live a long life. So it was almost kind of racing against time, trying to get as much information as possible, not knowing that all that information that I was gathering would spark this book, and this book is dedicated to him. Um, so what, what I find really interesting about this story, I always feel that my ancestors are guiding me. I have a part in here where I write about um, the family, this particular family, and the husband and wife, they go and they take out insurance policies. Now, insurance policies were sold to former slaves, like they just, the, the insurance companies preyed on them because they knew they were never going to pay the death benefit. They'd pay in, pay in, and pay in, and then they would make up some excuse. So I write about that. And I found out two years ago that my great-great-grandparents, former slaves, that my, my great-great-grandfather, who was a, a reverend, a very popular reverend in, in Macon, Georgia, um, he died in 1895, I think it was, and the Metropolitan Life Insurance Company, which is the same exact insurance company that I use in this book, refused to pay the death penalty, a $2,500 death penalty. Um, I'm sorry, benefit. I'm saying penalty. And my great-great-grandmother, Louisa, took them to court. And it dragged out for about three or four years. It was written up the, in the Atlanta Constitution um, newspaper. I have not been able to find out how it turned out. But that kind of freaked me out. I was like, I, I wrote about this <laughs> before I even knew about it. So Nowhere's a Place is a book within a book. It's about a mother and daughter, Sherry and Dumpling, who they have a very complicated relationship. Um, Sherry is rootless, and she's a little kooky. She's peculiar. She's the middle child, and she's uh, very well-educated, very well-traveled, but always searching for something. Her mother doesn't know what that is. Uh, Dumpling is living in Nevada. She's retired, and she's a grandmother, and she's just living her life, when Sherry calls her up and says, there's a family reunion in Georgia, and I'd like to go. And Dumpling says, okay, we can do that. And she said, I want to I drive. And she says, all the way to Georgia, that's a long ride. And, and she wouldn't have minded it if it was with any of the other children, but this is the peculiar one. To be in a car with this child for all those days might be a problem. But Sherry's motive really is she wants to repair the relationship with her mom. And she figures she can use this time to do that. And what she says to her mom is this, tell me the family history. Dumpling wants to know, why do you want to know? She said, because I want to write a book. So you have the present day story, which is my story that I'm writing, and then you have Sherry's interpretation of the story that Dumpling is telling her. That's why it's a dual book. Um, the part that I'm going to read is just one of my favorite parts. It's about the middle of the book, and it's um, after slavery. It's the second generation of children af born after slavery, and they're going to Philadelphia. The two grown sisters are going to Philadelphia to check on their um, eldest sister, Lily, who married and, and moved to Philly and had her children, and, and um, now all hell has broken loose, and so somebody's got to go and see about what's going on, because you know, back in the day before black folk had telephones and everything, it came by gossip, 
And uh, so words were sent. Okay. In Philadelphia, the neighbors welcomed Lily with open arms. They pretended to mind their own business, even though they eavesdropped from behind lace curtains, watched out in the open, right on the porch while seated in wooden rockers and pretending to read the paper or enjoy the day. By the time Corinthians was dead, they tissed-tissed loud enough for Lily to hear and made sure she saw the arch in their backs and the upward tilt of their noses whenever she was near. Back then, Germantown, Philadelphia was divided into pockets of Southerners, Alabamians to the west, South Carolinians to the south, North Carolinians with a sprinkle of Virginia people to the east, Georgians, Floridians, and Kentuckians on the north side, the rest settling in the middle. So there were some who knew the Sandersville lessings personally, and the first words that got back to Seuss said, Lily come to Philadelphia, to Germantown, married woman, minister husband, she's sitting up in the front pew of the Church of the Black Virgin, white gloved, proper dress, singing the Lord's prayers, smiling at her minister husband, bringing cookies to bake sales, buying furniture on credit, belly swelling, first baby come, a girl, she the sweetest thing you ever did want to see, light-skinned, head full of black hair, pretty little thing, they name her love. Second set of words say, she bought two life insurance policies, a new car, more kids come, a boy named Bernard Moses and a girl named Clementine Marie, her hands full, one walking, one teething, one crawling, house nice, new porch, hanging flower baskets. They doing all right for themselves, a credit to the community, a credit to the race. Third set of words come. She a good wife, visiting her husband in the hospital twice a day, finding another minister to stand in for him at the church. The children clean, look sad for their ailing papa, though. Fourth set say, he went hard. Lily ball like thunder, fell out at the coffin, cash in the policies, sold off the church and the building beside it, men coming and going, she wearing red gloves, red lipstick, and red beads around her neck, drinking, the devil's music playing in the parlor, another baby come, even though her husband did. A girl, Lily named her Wella. What foolish kind of name is that? Fifth set say, well, any one of us could have told Corinthians as soon as we laid eyes on Lily Lessing that she would be the spade to dig his grave, but he couldn't see it, blinded by her fair skin and long hair and whatever it was she did to him in bed at night that kept him grinning like an idiot. She was too young for him anyway, and not even a virgin. Now, now Lily barely minding her own children, leaving them for days at a time while she whore around Philadelphia, around Germantown, like she done lost her goddamn mind. The eldest girl too grown for her own good, grown and passionate about red, red scarf tied around her neck, and we've even seen her clomping up and down the streets in her mama's red high-heeled shoes, sitting on the porch, legs crossed like a harlot, face painted up to match. Now, is that any way for an 11-year-old girl to act? Somebody better get, a, get up here and see about these children. Seuss had never been on a train in her life and wasn't about to get on one now, 
Bavani had to tend to the land and the others were off making a way in Detroit, Chicago, St. Louis, Kansas City, raising families crammed into two by four places called tenements, working hard at putting some distance between slave and sir, mammy and miss. So Becca and Helen would have to go. Sunday dresses, money pinned to the inside of their brassieres, polished shoes, purses dangling from their wrists, hands clutching brown paper bags with shiny, greasy bottoms, trees streaked by outside their window, army men laughing loud around them, women clutching babies, old people nodding off before the first whistle blows. Helen and Becca try to hide their excitement, try to look like this is just one of many train rides, but they give themselves away when they point and giggle like schoolgirls at everything and anything. They don't have money for a compartment with beds, and even if they did, colored, fo colored folk aren't allowed that luxury. So when their eyes begin to burn from staring too long, they finally sleep, Becca's head resting on the glass window and Helen's on Becca's soft shoulder. I'll stop there. Thank you. So, yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. Yeah, we were wondering if uh, anyone had any questions at all. Comments. Comments would be good. Oh. Okay. I'll be looking forward to sharing shelf space with you. 
Oh, thank you. You know, we we recorded that. I was in Florida at the time. <laughs> yes, I was in Florida, and it was a whole big scene. And I had, I was high on Claritin. And <laughs> my cousins drove me there like a bad person. It's great. I'm glad. I'm glad that worked. Mm-hmm. Oh. For that, and and listen, I think that um, with the ebook thing, we are. I'm getting a second life, and and Cortia is now here in America being published, and so many other writers of color who were kind of published and thrown to the side back during the big black publishing phase will now get a second life in all these new writers because with the e-books with, well let me start with with bookstores, with the big bookstores not, not so much the independents they had us all in one area and so really and truly white folk were not walking into the black interest area or black writers, they wasn't walking into there but now from the safety of their <laughs> Kindle they can browse and I find that what I've always wanted and what I believe I've obtained at this point is I want it to be crossed over because I don't write just for one uh, type of people. I write for readers, and readers come in all colors. So, yeah. I was introduced by your book, I know, and um, I've read Loving Donovan and also Melissa Stenberg. My first question is, do you continue Loving Donovan? Loving Donovan just... Have you uh, have you been emailing me or tweeting me? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't oh, because I get I get uh, tweets and emails about that all the time about Love and Donovan. It just, your heart stops at the air. You, just, you want it to continue? Um, no, I that's done, and that's that story was um, based on personal experience. And so, you know, whenever I'm going through something, I have to write it down. And I didn't even know that, you know, the bits and pieces I was journaling about would eventually end up in a novel. So, uh, no, Donovan is is married and happy and Bernice is sitting here. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Well, that's that's my fictional memoir, so more truth than fiction, but we put fictional to protect the not-so-innocent. <laughs> when you mentioned um, the transition to Kindle and the e-book, um, why, do you, why would you decide to stay with a publisher as opposed to continuing to the e-book? And I know that, the, especially because I have friends that are writers, the problem is that you have to filter through the bottom feeders. There's a lot of information out there. There's a 
lot of books out there. There's a lot of, you know, you can do 99 cent, 199 mm -hmm. books. And it's hard because there's so much junk out there. Mm -hmm. It's hard for sometimes writers, very good writers, to service to the top. Um, well, I'm doing both. I'm with my publisher, traditional publisher, but I've, I've learned a, a hard lesson. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. So while I gave um, Akashic Nowhere is a Place in the Warmest December to reissue, I kept for myself Loving Donovan and Camilla's Roses to self-publish. And so there's a balance. And really and truly, there's really nothing wrong with the 99-cent thing um, because, especially for um, authors who are already, they already have um, a few few books out, out, because what it does is it allows someone who would not otherwise read that author say, it's just ninety nine cents. Let me let me let me try it. And I and I did that with the ebooks that I had for about a month I had it for 99 cents just to get the ball rolling but once you get them hooked mm -hmm. then you raise the price. <laughs> the sample process helps as well yeah. because when you were talking I was on my Kindle yeah. looking up I didn't see a couple of books you named I did not find on my yeah, Kindle. Yeah. So and I I like a book in my hand but because I mean I read a 900 foot book you know I can't mm -hmm. put it in my purse. Yeah, right. So yeah. I had some books I do you know, I still like that physical book. Yeah. Yeah. You can get uh, this book and you can get a book of blues. They're out on Kindle. But all my earlier books, they were published before e-books were even out. So, uh, and I don't know what my old publisher, because I, I was with uh, Little Brown for um, four books. And then uh, my last books have been with small publishers. And I found that you there's... You have to get your rights back. I have to get... Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I get my rights back, or yeah. I don't even know if we even sign for ebook rights because, you know, they, they take everything, but they didn't There's a There's a little... Rights. There's a weird... Because uh, we've been yeah. talking about it. So yeah. there's a clause that kind of yeah. covers it, but yeah. still, yeah. Because yeah. they, they say... They say something like anything in the known mm -hmm. universe. They say. <laughs> so, so if I was to get published on Jupiter, they would own rights. <laughs> right. <laughs> but um, yeah, they, I think we we need to sort that out. But all my earlier books, they they haven't been, they haven't gone forward with publishing them on Kindle and stuff like that. So I've got to sort out mm -hmm. how we can get that done. But the later ones, Book of Blues and and this one, you can get on Kindle uh, over here. Yeah. I mean, their struggles are a little different because they didn't have the type of civil rights and it wasn't like that level of slavery wasn't in the UK specific. It was more than like, you know, it was either colonies in Africa or always like the level of slavery in like, you know, the, um, the Caribbean colonies. But yeah. I think that, like, a lot of times there, is, there are a lot of parallels and parallels between like the um, black British experience, especially the black urban British experience and the black, like, American experience. And so is there a way, like, have you thought about ways to kind of bridge that a little bit? I know there was a play here recently called um, Amina's Kitchen. Yeah, Kwame's play. Stage, yeah. Was, it's phenomenal, but I think what caught people a lot of times is that there's a lot of parallels yeah. between, like, what's going on in the UK and what's going on here. I mean, a lot of times here people are talking about it, not even call it feral children, but they like those ghetto children, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, with the gang problem. Here. Yeah, it means... So I just wonder, if you, you know, have you ever thought about kind of... Yeah, uh, I've I got to take that back, actually, to, to where you started. I mean, the first thing is, is that, you know, 
you know, the Brits, they, they by no means started the whole slave trade um, in the street, but, but they were certainly uh, some of the most brutal, you know, um, where, where that, in, in that regard. And um, I don't think... It's, it's difficult for me to, to, to look at it that way in terms of you saying that, you know, it's slightly different because it was the same thing. It was just people that were taken to different places. So, um, you know, there would be people that would be taken from Africa, as we know, and then they would be taken to uh, the West Indies, and then they would be taken to America. And sometimes even, you know, like Jamaica was the island where you took the bad slaves from America, and you know, if you were, if you really messed up, like you know, you caused, you burnt down somewhere, or you ran away a few times and stuff, they would ship you to Jamaica. Well, and so, that's not really true. Yeah, that's not really. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was immigration. Well, the Romans. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we don't see it that way at all. I mean, yeah, um, I mean, but but then, yeah, there's obviously going to be a different take on it. Yeah, I mean, definitely, you know, there's been there's been black people uh, mainly came to England, you know, after the war, like en masse in a big group. They came you know, after the war, but there has been black people, uh, you know, uh, in England from from you know way back from the First World War and before that, and you know, there's always been pockets of you know black community. So after the um, the Civil War over here, there was like, you know, 200,000 200, uh, black people in, in London, you know, and so who'd left, you know, to escape, uh, you know, because, you know, people wanted to get their freedom over here and they thought maybe after fighting in the Civil War they'd get their freedom and then they found that wasn't true and then they would come to London. So there's always been a black community. Uh, Queen Victoria uh, was talking about uh, have, trying to get out the Blackamoors, that's what they called them at the time, and you know, finding a way to deal with the black problem. So, so uh, as they called it, that's what they called it. Uh, so, so in one sense it's kind of true, but in another sense there's, from the minute that black people were on, on, on the island, we've been fighting for our civil rights in a sense and from the minute we came over in that big big massive group uh, you know there was protests there was riots there was you know uh, you know right there was uh, riots mainly because people were being attacked you know so there was the the 58 riot in in Labrick Grove which was basically started because uh, they saw a black guy with a white woman and they just said they weren't having it and then they were start, starting to burn down houses that had uh, mixed race couples in them and that, that started a riot and it was in a book called Absolute Beginners by Colin McInnes, and that was the film Absolute Beginners that David Bowie sang the song to. And that, that's what it was about. It was around, it culminated that book and the film in the 58 riots. And so, um, yeah, no, for me, I, I feel that we've had to fight. From the minute we got there, we've had to fight. And, and it was fighting to say that uh, we were part of the fabric of the country because 
most of the people who were there had fought in World War Two, you know, and had fought, you know, for Britain, you know, as part of, you know, uh, um, you know, the West Indian uh, armies and stuff. So I think that that uh, for me, it was always about civil rights in 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 that sense, you know, and. Uh, yeah, I think there's not enough uh, conversation about actually the similarities, you know. I'm not intending to do a book about that. Um, there has been a book that was done by a writer called Gemma Weeks, which is crosses from like, England to New York and to St. Lucia, which is where her parents are from. Um, but for me, I'm writing a thesis at the minute, which is about... Um, uh, the African diaspora and the literary influences between you know our, our novels, you know the work that we're doing, which is similar. I mean, we've been talking all the way on the train, and you know, and then we went to lunch and we talked some more, and we find there's so many parallels between our experiences, even though we've grown up in these different places, you know. And certainly with my generation of Black British people, you know, I'm, it's weird. I'm considered third generation Black British. That's generally what they, they call it, uh, because my, my grandmother came over, and then my mother came over. My, you know, she was brought from Barbados from, to, to live in uh, England, and then I was, I was born there. But I actually considered myself first generation in the sense that I was the first generation who was born in Britain. And for us, it's just different. It's, it's our home in the same way that this is your home. You know? And uh, so in some ways... It, for us, it is a civil rights fight. You know, it is a fight for liberty and you know for our, our you know, our, our, our intellectual, artistic freedoms. You know, like you know, our right to be British, in the sense that we were born in that place. We don't know anywhere else, in a sense. You know, so uh, it's interesting. I'm hoping with the thesis, though, that it will be able to talk about how how we come together from people from Africa and people from America and people from the Caribbean and, and the similarities we have uh, through our literary voices. Thank you. I love history. Um, and when I stumble across something that, you know, I find interesting, then I just continue to go along the um, path. Now, with, with Glorious, the book that helped me the most was when, when Harlem was in vogue. Um, uh, Dr. Levering, I think, Louis Levering. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, I have to go back and reread that book. It was amazing. And I just, I think I read it in three days. And so he had everything in there that I didn't even know I needed. And so I, I that was kind of the springboard for me. You don't have any excuse with research now because of the internet. And, uh, but of course, I like to have my books, and so I ordered a lot of books, and um, I read a lot of information. I started compiling. I had about two big folders, not knowing that, you know, which item would end up. And so, really for me, it's like piecing together a puzzle. You know, you put it all in, you read through it 50, 60, 
times, a hundred times until you're sick of it and you pull what doesn't fit. But the stuff that gets pulled never gets thrown away because I may use it later on. When I was writing Sugar, I think for me, I used, I used Barbados. Mm. My father's family is from Barbados. So that, I was familiar with that little small village type uh, life. But the other thing is, when I sit down to write, it's a very magical and spiritual experience for me. And this, the reality completely disappears, and I am totally in that space. I have an issue with, um, um, what do I want to say, my tenses, because... Am I am I out here or am I in there? You know, and so usually at the end of the manuscript when I send it in, they're like, "Oh, Bernice, the tenses, the tenses." Um, so that and you know, you just take over the years, you see things and you hang on to it and you just build. That's that's just how it works. It's 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 very difficult for me to explain how that happens. <laughs> but thank you, and please thank the book club members. <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry. yes. Yes, 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 yes you. Go for it. Hi. Yeah. And can you explain the explanation as to why? I think that's really great that you did a love story on, on uh, to a black couple. Mm-hmm. Um, why is there a lack of that? Mm-hmm. Do you believe? And you know, you don't see it on television. Yeah. You know, between black couples, there's always a lot of comedy, or mm. a lot of uh, arguing between the two. There's never a solid relationship. And if there is, it's usually an interracial couple or yeah. something like that. Yeah. Um, is, is there a problem like that as far as, um, you said, as far as British black writers are concerned, American writers, I think, mm. have an issue with that? Um, mm. I think over here we maybe see it a little bit more than you see it in England. And um, I mean, just just to be clear, in a book of blues, uh, it's not just about uh, romantic love. And there are some uh, there are some relationships that are not specifically black relationships as well. Because I'm trying to I'm trying to trying to capture the way that the world is, and also not not superimpose completely my view. Um, but I think, I think there's an issue with the way that wider society might want to see black relationships. And um, I think that's not always... Like, sometimes it does come from the writers, definitely. Uh, but I think sometimes as well, especially, you know, just talking about the UK, um, in, in terms of what people think that people want to see, they feel that they want to show multicultural London or multicultural England and what that means is uh, not that many uh, black, strong black relationships, you know. Um, 
I try to cover it all. I try to cover strong black relationships. I try to cover, uh, you know, mixed relationships. I try to go, uh, cover uh, gay relationships. Uh, I try to cover it all because I'm talking about humanity and uh, I believe that's what's out there and I should depict that uh, in a positive way. So um, I'm talking about, but in Book of Blues, I'm talking about love between uh, friends. Uh, I'm talking about love between, uh, you know, uh, uh, mothers and daughters. Uh, there's a story about that. Um, I'm talking about a guy that's in love with a place. Uh, there's a story about a guy who goes back to Africa for the first time. Um, I'm talking about all sorts of love, actually, because I think, you know, not just the, the, the romantic love, um, there isn't just a lack in just romantic love, you know, there's a lack in all sorts of love and, and, and discussing black people being in love or the reason it's called a book of blues is because it's like it's about people who are struggling with love and how love can actually be a struggle for people that sometimes you get through sometimes you don't get through sometimes you know it's just you know our conflict with love the fact that love can be a conflict as well it's always a conflict you know even when you're in a good stable relationship you know it's hard (laughs) it's hard so I wanted to talk about that and like I said, without all the... Because usually I have that in my stories anyway. I found as a writer when I first started writing my novels, even though you know, they were set on this housing estate, um, it was about love. You know, the underlying theme was about love. It was the love of these two cousins who lived on this estate you know, and how they so, so wanted to protect each other from you know, what was going on in the street. And then when I, when I, uh, you know, I matured a bit, and I started to look at my own work. In hindsight, I realized that, that love was the underlying theme in most of my works, actually. So I wanted to, I wanted to bring that to the fore and lose all the other stuff, you know? Uh, so, yeah, there's all, there's all different types of love in the book. But in answer to your question, I, I think it's just difficult having, having the work having to be judged outside of the community a lot. And it means that people uh, make concessions themselves sometimes, you know. They choose to make concessions. They choose to write, to say, okay, I'm not going to depict that because that's not what people want to see. Or it's imposed on the writers and they're saying there's no audience for that type of thing or whatever, you know. So, I mean, it's hard for artists of, of, of all colours and, you know, but especially for black artists because, you know, we don't always control the mechanisms which puts the work out there. Yeah. Not at all. Um, that when Sugar came out in 2000, immediately people were like, "Where's the sequel? Where's the sequel?" And I was like, "There is no sequel. Like that's it. I'm done. I want to another story." Um, but when I started, when I started sending Sugar out looking for an agent or uh, a publisher, it ended up with Anita Diggs, and she was with Warner Books at the time. She was in um, marketing, I believe. She was in marketing, but she was going through the slush pile, and she stumbled across Sugar, and she called me. She said, "I really love this book, and I'm going to try to get Warner Books to publish it." She said, "But first, I want to let you know something." 
um, you have this you have this issue. And I said, what issue is that? She said, it's an issue that most first-time novelists have. I was like, okay, well, what is it? She said, it's called first-time novelitis. And she's like, there's a lot of information in this book. You need to cut it down. So Sugar, probably the original manuscript, was probably 400 and something pages. And I really don't write <clears throat> big books. This is probably the largest book I've written. And um, so I, I did. I cut it down, and I, I don't throw anything away. It was just hard. It's like cutting your baby's hair for the first time. You put it in a little plastic, and you keep it forever. So that's what I did. And the story just started calling to me again. And, and I started writing um, whatever novel I was working on, and these characters from Sugar kept popping in. It was like, you don't belong in this story. And the idea was, no, you're not supposed to be writing that story. You're supposed to be writing our story. So uh, that's how This Bitter Earth happened. Now, I will say, obviously, when This Bitter Earth came out, is there going to be another book? And I kept saying, no, no, no. But I've actually been kind of thinking that I think there might be a final book to that. But I can't tell you when it's going to get written. It, but I, it probably you know, will be written within the next five years because that's how it starts. It's like you start thinking and thinking and thinking, pull your thoughts away or try to shift your thoughts to something else and it just keeps coming back. So I figure, okay, well, I'm used to it now. In the next few years, I'll be working on it. And then that will be it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for coming. Thank you.